I titled the sermon this morning, Breaking the Silence, Breaking the Silence. And now that we know Luke, we've been introduced to him last week, uh, we're going to experience where he chooses to begin this story, where he he looks and he, and he sees the, the overarching flow of the Old Testament and the story of redemption, and this is where he says it should begin. Let's begin here today, breaking the silence. Now, I'd like to pray as we dive into God's Word, ask you to join me if you would. Father, we're back only by your grace, sustained each day through this week, brought here together once again to make much of you. There is no other place we would rather be. There is no greater joy than to gather, and there is no focus of our joy that fits more perfectly than our Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our life, our hope, and our eternal joy. Thank you, Lord, for sending him. Thank you that he has served to wake us from our sinful slumber, and draw us in relationship to you, to know you, to be found in you, to to be your children by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we come now with a purpose. We come to know you more. We come to delight in you and to see your hand at work in history and then to discern how, in fact, your hand might be at work right here in this place, in this moment, that we might be faithful, that that we might be obedient, and that we might represent well the name that you have called us to carry to the ends of the earth, the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin where the Old Testament leaves off, the very last couple verses of the Old Testament. Malachi Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this prophecy. Behold, the Lord says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is where the the prophets leave off. That is where the Word of God ceases in the Old Testament. And then, in part, because of the rebellion and sin of Israel and their continued cycle of rejecting the Lord and disobedience and and rebellion, God gives 400 years of silence. Now, think about this. The people were in Egypt for about this long, 400 years. Uh, This gap in uh, the communication of the Lord, no word, no prophets raised up by God to speak on his behalf during this period of time, 400 years. Part of God's judgment on his people, but also his preparation for the new thing that he would do. A lot of history happened during this period of time, and it did not go that well for Israel. Things were very difficult. So we come into chapter 1, verse 5, and we find ourselves in this introduction here. So this is a a setting. Where are we? When are we? What is this happening? Uh, Who is in charge? Well, it's in the days of Herod, king of Judea. 
Now, we don't have to go any farther than that to understand this is a difficult time. Roman occupation is the reality. It is a violent occupation. It is a crushing, overwhelming force kind of occupation. Rome doesn't play games. And yet, there has been some allowances given by Rome. One was that they placed this kind of puppet king to rule in Jerusalem over the people. The days of Herod. Now, I'd like to ask you to join me in, in doing this. From time to time, people say, Herod the Great. Okay, everybody get your hands up now. We're going to do this together, rabbit ears. Okay, Herod the Great. Get ready. King of Judea. That has to be done, doesn't it? Because the reality is, is this is Herod the not-so-great, if you really think about it. I was amazed as we journeyed through the Holy Land this summer and saw place after place, building after building, all kinds of things that Herod the Great had done. And you can't help but say, that's pretty amazing. Let's get to know this quote-unquote king of Judea. Herod the Great was an Edomite. He was not even a Jew. He was the son of, of, of Esau, not of Jacob. And so here you have an Edomite who is the proclaimed ruler of Judea, and uh, he is sitting on a puppet throne under the Romans. He really has no actual biblical role of authority whatsoever outside of the fact that God has ordained that he would have this role under the Romans. Partly because he was an imposter, a poser, really, he worked extremely hard to woo the Jews to like him. And uh, so Rome was brilliant in this. They, they really did think through how can we put someone in place who is loyal to us, but who can kind of run this middle ground of wooing the Jews to keep peace and working for us. Well, Herod the Great was their man. He uh, worked hard to be liked by the Jews. He did all kinds of different things. But the, the problem is, as you see, as you track through his story, he's increasingly paranoid, uh, which is true of most megalomaniacs. Uh, the more they inflate and, and think much of themselves, the more they feel threatened by the slightest thing. And the more they move with increasing power and force and a swift hand to put down any threat, Herod moved into a massive, I mean, when you stand there and you see what he did as far as this, this building campaign in the Holy Land, it was incredible. The Temple Mount alone is, is magnificent. It's mind-blowing. Basically, Mount Moriah is an uneven piece of ground. And because King Herod thought it makes more sense to have a level piece of ground so that the courts are all level, he leveled the mountain. How did he do it? By building up uh, an entire uh, foundation, as it were, to build the temple on. So the Temple Mount is an incredible display of, of genius. In fact, we were down underneath uh, parts of where this wall runs, and there are arches that are built. Uh, t dozens and dozens of arches that are underneath the Temple Mount that are holding up the weight of this court that is built on top. All those stones are standing on arches that go way down into the ground. Like you would build a modern-day skyscraper, Herod built these arches underneath. 
And uh, so then on top of that, it is Herod's temple. He built it and embellished it, made it even bigger. And every stone that the temple was made of had his insignia on it. His name was on everything, everywhere you go. The fortress at Masada, we got to see that. It's magnificent. He actually never went there. He just built it just in case he needed to. The Herodium, where he ended up being buried, he built a mountain into a fortress, and then at his death, he filled it in with dirt. That was the command, so that no one else could enjoy it. That's how important he saw himself to be. And the port of Caesarea, I want to show you a picture we took as we were there. This is a freshwater swimming pool that Herod the Great installed on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. So you have waves crashing, and now the, the walls have been broken down. Uh, so this is salt water now. But there would have been a, a whole kind of wave break that was installed. So you have salt water out here and a, a spring that flows into this freshwater pool so King Herod could enjoy the ocean breezes and a nice swim. And here's the irony about this pool. King Herod would invite people to come and enjoy a getaway with him at Caesarea on the coast. Uh, the problem is, is that many times they were his enemies, people he saw as a threat. He would invite them to come for a swim, and they would end up dead. And over time, the Jews began to kind of push back and say, this guy's violent. He is, he's killing all kinds of people. And uh, I heard someone say, well, Her Herod's response was, I'm not killing a bunch of people at my pool. They just don't know how to swim. You know, they just happen to be in there. So, but there were many people who were killed right there in that freshwater swimming pool at the hand of this increasingly paranoid ruler of Judea. Now, this crescendos we see in Matthew chapter 2 when he orders the killing of all the babies that are two years old and under in the, uh, the region where Jesus' birth was, right, in Bethlehem. And so you have this, this move, this, this slaughter of little children. He was not a good man. He was violent. He was vicious. He was murderous. He was a poser. He was a puppet. Only given the authority that he had because God allowed him to have it for his purpose. Now, here is one of the things I love about how Luke brings this to us. He simply says, it was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, and that's all we're going to say about him. You know why? Because he's not that great. Now let's talk about the people that God esteems as great. And so that's where the story picks up. So we have the context, and it really serves as a point of contrast. Herod the not-so-great, and now we're going to meet some people who are, in the eyes of the Lord, truly great. Let's move on. I titled these verses, Ordinary Yet Peculiar. Ordinary Yet Peculiar. I think you'll see what I mean as we, as we move on in. In the days of, king Her uh, of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because of Elizabeth, was barren. 
and both were advanced in years. So we learn about this old couple, an ordinary couple, uh, but a peculiar couple. We learn some things about them. First of all, there's nothing flashy or out of place here. You just have a, a common, uh, one, of, one of thousands of, of small town priests. Somewhere out in the hill country of Judea was a man named Zechariah. He was a small town priest. He was doing his ministry faithfully. He was married to one of the line of Aaron. And so Elizabeth would have had relatives who were almost all priests. And she was faithful as well. They walked in righteousness before God. It even it says blamelessly. And whenever you see that, whether it be spoken of, of Job or, or others in the Bible, blameless before the Lord, it doesn't mean sinless. It means that they walk in such a way that is faithful. They handle their sin in righteous obedience, in sacrificing to the Lord, acknowledging it as sin, turning from it and seeking to obey. This is the blameless walk of the one that God calls. Walking righteously, faithfully in the commandments, seeking to honor the Lord in all of His commanded ways and acknowledging their failures rightly before Him and turning from them. Now, here is something that is very interesting. It, it's peculiar. They have no children. They have no children. And in this time, that would have been a, a blaring uh, magnet for criticism. They would have been targeted as somehow, uh, you know, sinful or wrong. This is part of God's judgment, isn't it? Right? You have no, you know, sons. You have no children. And they were advanced in years. This is a nice, gentle way of Luke saying they were old. Okay, I love the politically correct. He's so sensitive to this. We're going to see this again in a minute. It's wonderful. Advanced in years, uh, they were older, which means that, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at this, it's a fairly bleak and hopeless scenario as it relates to children. It's, it's not likely going to change the situation that they're in. However, they love the Lord. They honor him. They serve him faithfully. They walk with him obediently. They're not walking around with bitterness and anger, running from God. They are close to him. And so we see that they have handled well this challenge that God has placed upon them to carry. Bleak and hopeless. An older couple with no sons, no children. Doesn't this ring familiar to you? Haven't we been here before? Luke wants us to say this, that this is part of what it means to be a student of the Word. All of the Old Testament should be jumping for us at this point. Why does this sound so familiar? Think about this. Look at this list. Every single patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had wives Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, who were all barren and childless, unable to have children. You think that's an accident. Then you fast forward to Hannah and remember her prayer. This is Samuel's mom pleading in the temple, Lord, please give me a son. 
I even found that uh, Samson's mother was barren and childless. We're talking some of the most significant people of the Old Testament share this in common with this peculiar old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. That should tell us something. We should be thinking, okay, there's, maybe there's something that could happen to this scenario. Maybe, maybe this is ripe with opportunity instead of hopeless and bleak. In fact, it is. The opportunity of a lifetime arises. This is not an overstatement. Let's pick it up at verse 8. Now, while uh, Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, yeah, that's in Jerusalem, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, there's a little background we've got to understand about how this works. You have the high priest, who is the main priest of all of the priests. And he is the one who goes in and the only one who goes into the Holy of Holies. But then you have thousands of small town and village priests who would be operating and leading and teaching and functioning all over the land of Israel. And two weeks out of the year, separate weeks, they would be called upon to, in rotation, come to Jerusalem and participate in the, uh, the offering of incense, okay? And so it just so happens that Zechariah is chosen on his week to come. And even more so, he is chosen to uh, participate in this offering of incense. Let me say a little about what that is. We know from Exodus that in the tabernacle there was an offering of incense that was to perpetually rise before the Lord. It's not in the Holy of Holies. It's just outside of the curtain, very close to where uh, the curtain would be. And so if you're one of these priests and you are called upon to go into uh, the temple and offer this incense, it is a, a fear and trembling kind of experience. This incense stands for the very prayers of the people. It rises before God as an aroma of dependence, upon his sovereign rule and reign. It rises before God as an offering of, of hope that he would indeed accept them as he had promised, as they faithfully sacrificed and trusted in him and his promise. He was chosen by lot, and I would add, only once. Most often, uh, these, these, these small town priests would only have this opportunity once. So if you're chosen at all, it's an opportunity that most priests would just be blown away by. And once you do this, you never get to do it again. So this is the first time that Zechariah has ever been chosen to do this. And it's the last time he will ever have the opportunity to do this honor. This is the high point of his entire career as a priest. So if you're Zechariah, <laughs> this is it. I mean, you, you get to go in and bring the incense while the people are praying. You're in. You are the one chosen by lot. And what do we know about how the, the casting of the dice go? Chosen by God, right? There is no chance. Chance does not exist in the sovereign rule and reign of God who is over all things. The book of Jonah calls that out quite specifically, right? God chooses him for such a time as this. 
no greater honor. As the people wait outside in prayer, he begins to move toward the altar of incense and offer this gift to the Lord. Now, verse 11, let's pick up the story. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Just pause here for a second, because this has to be noted. Um, I am on a, a lifelong campaign to end Valentine's cherubs, the little cute chubby babies that shoot arrows of hearts and love and all of that. Don't ever, ever, ever think angels have anything to do like that. Angels are always in Scripture referred to in a masculine male form, and they are fearsome. Every time an angel appears to someone, the first thing that they have to say is, fear not, right? Because their, their people are just struck with fear. They're frozen. So Zechariah is not, oh, cute little cherub. How you doing, little buddy? This is a fearsome angel, a warrior in God's army. And he appears right next to the altar of incense. This is not what Zechariah would have expected. 400 years of silence. Nothing like this has happened in lifetimes. And here it is. It's happening to Zechariah, the no-name priest from a small town of Judea. Hmm. Let's go on. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great. I love this. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Look at the connections here from this angel. Let's examine this a little bit more closely. First of all, I think Zechariah would have wanted the angel to pause after this first line. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I think that the prayers for a son, for a child, had ceased long before. I don't think he or Elizabeth had continued in this prayer as age set in and the years advanced. It's on display in how he responds in just a few verses. But this, your prayers have been heard? But what prayers? I, I don't have that in view. What do, you, what do you mean, my prayer? My prayer for a child? You mean a son? My wife is going to have a son? This is astonishing. It's overwhelming for him to try to process this. What an amazing thing we learn about prayer in this exchange, I believe. Here's a few descriptions that we can gain from 
this prophesied son who is not even yet a glimmer in his mother's eye at this point. Here is what the angel says in detail about the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. He's to be born to a common priest from a small town. He is to be born to an old, childless couple. He will bring them and many joy, gladness, and rejoicing. And he will be great before the Lord. Oh, in a day where Herod just wanted everybody to see his greatness. Here comes one who is going to be great. Isn't it just like God to do that in that way? Hmm. He is to not partake of any wine or strong drink. This is probably a reference to the Nazarite vow, uh, one that he would take not just for a time, but from birth. He is to to uh, be dedicated to the Lord in a unique and special way, to have this vow that uh, not that he was uh, sinful if he had a drink, but that he was designated to be set apart by God in a special way. No wine or strong drink. And here's another indicator of this. God says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. New American Standard, I think, is more specific here. I like it better. It's while yet in his mother's womb. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that personhood does not begin at birth. God weaves his masterpiece in the womb. The babies in the womb are children who carry the image of God. And in this case, one who would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, yet while in the womb. We're going to see the response uh, as Elizabeth and Mary meet and the baby in her womb leaps for joy. What an amazing thing this is. It also reveals to us not only a, a stand for in our day what we would refer to as the sanctity of life. Let's be clear. It's not a political issue. It's, it's a biblical issue, okay? Abortion is murder as God defines it. That is killing. It's the taking of a life. And we need to stand clear on this in our day and support those who work hard down at the crisis pregnancy clinic. Uh, this is uh, an important work that they do. We stand with them. We also see here, though, that God is free to do his work as he wills. Some would say, well, wait a second here. Uh, John the Baptist hasn't been born yet alone, exercised his free will to choose God, so you can't have the Spirit coming. You can't have God overimposing his will on John the Baptist. Well, Jeremiah would join the song and say, uh, he can do that. God is the one who is free with his will. He saves as he pleases, such that he can say, I'm putting the Holy Spirit in this young man before he's even born. He's mine. He serves me, just like Jeremiah. I've set you apart. Even before birth, you are mine. You will speak for me. Just like Paul on the road, running this way with all his might, God says, I save you, and he moves him this way. This is God's sovereign freedom. It's an amazing display of God's sovereign rule and purpose in the life of John the Baptist. It says he will turn many to the Lord. He will go before him. Look at this. Verse 17. He will go before him. 
and you have to stop there. I capitalized it because we know who the him, I believe, is. That's Jesus. He's the forerunner. He, John the Baptist, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the children to their fathers, what does this bring to us? This bridges the gap. This ends the 400 years of silence. This is the fulfillment of exactly what Malachi wrote at the very end of the Old Testament. And this is why I believe Luke puts this right here. This is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Literally bringing these words to bear. This is what the angel says. Look at how it bridges the gap. Hmm. The forerunner. Now, what would you say if you were Zechariah to this angel? How would you respond to this? That's a lot to take in. Wisdom would say, don't speak right away. Right? Just hold your tongue. Just let me, give me one second here. Okay, my prayers have been answered. My wife is going to bear me a son, and he's going to be the forerunner in all of these things. He, and you're here. After 400 years of, of silence. Hmm. I think it's easy to kind of be a little hard on Zechariah. I, I, I'm pretty much with him there, right? I mean, that's a hard one to process. Listen to how he says it. I, I titled this, Unbelievable, I'm Speechless. If only he would have been speechless, it might have gone better for him. Zechariah, verse 18, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is, get ready guys, here's a piece of wisdom, advanced in years. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. He doesn't say his wife is old. He says she's advanced in years. I'm the old man. This seems unbelievable. It seems impossible. Hmm. Now, it's difficult with the, the work of words and translation to feel. We can't hear tone. But in these words, there was a display of sinful disbelief. It was sinful. It was wrong. His response to the angel was wrong. He failed to believe. He failed to trust. Now, we're going to see a contrast in Mary the young teenager who would be visited by the same angel. And her response is a little different. We're going to compare and contrast those accounts as we go through the weeks. But I can't help but have this moment of, of deja vu. We've been here before, haven't we? Does any rem anyone remember moving through Genesis when the word came uh, to Abraham and he's sitting with the angel? And, and there's laughter from the tent. You remember the laughter? Sarah overhears it and she laughs. Oh, kidding me. We're too old for that. He's an old man and I am advanced in years. <laughs> what was the response to Sarah? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see what he's doing? This is not random. This is not shooting from the hip. This is purposeful. A statement of God's absolute sovereignty over all things, including the womb. 
of one advanced in years. Hmm. Even in the face of unbelief, this is where we're met, isn't it? Even in our fickle hearts, our, we're so slow to trust. God is so kind to us in our weakness. He shows kindness. But there still is a sentence to be handed out. Verse 19, the angel answered him, and you got to just feel this, I am Gabriel. Okay, now, usually it's fear not. Maybe this one was, do I need to remind you who I am? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. There's a lot going on in here. First of all, we need to have just a, a glimpse here into this angelic realm. Angels are real. Demons are real. This is not folklore. This is not Hollywood. This is real. God created myriads of angels. There are fallen angels who followed Lucifer in the rebellion. He is one angel that we know a name of. He has fallen. He has cast down. A third of the an angelic realm rebelled against the Lord in His glory. And they were pronounced upon a curse and cast down from heaven. Those who remain, the two-thirds that remain, are uh, led by the captain of the Lord of hosts, Jesus himself. He is the, the, the commander of the armies of the Lord, as it were. And there are two other angels that we're given names of. Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel here. He is sent to be a messenger of the Lord many times. What an awesome thing this is. And all these other angels are unnamed, but they have names. And I think someday we'll realize even right now in this place how many angels are ministering, protecting, encouraging, and guarding. They're sent to minister God's grace in the lives of believers. We can't see them, but they are real. Zechariah had his eyes opened to the reality of this dimension, this presence of God's ministering servants. Hmm. He sent me to speak this to you. This is good news, but you didn't believe it. So now you're going to hold your tongue like probably you should have. And uh, he's sentenced to, to silence. Here's why this is a big deal. First of all, the joy that he has as he realizes this is real is held back. He's not able to express this. That's a big deal. But also, one of the challenges here is how do you finish your role as priest? Here is what his duty was. He was to go into just outside the Holy of Holies, offer the incense, pray, and then return outside the temple and raise his hands and speak the ironic blessing to the people as a reassurance that the Lord has accepted their prayers. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom, peace. He comes out of the temple. All of the people are wondering, wow, what was the delay? What's this crazy old guy from a small town in Judea doing in there, right? Chosen by a lot. Most of them don't know who he is. Finally, he comes out, lit up, animated. It's trades. It's all he's got. This would have sent ripples through Jerusalem. Everyone would have been aware of this. Something happened to Zechariah. We don't know what it was because he can't speak. Baron no more, verse 23. Look at how the story concludes for this week. When his time of service was ended, well, he went to his home, back to his small town. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Incredible. Just as the angel spoke, just as the Lord ordained, the woman advanced in years, who was the wife of the old man, was pregnant with a baby boy. Now, we don't know why for five months she kept herself hidden, but there was something of a joy that was just relished in those five months. She treasured that gift. You might always also add to the fact that her husband couldn't talk. Maybe she really enjoyed that too. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but there was a period of time where she thoroughly treasured up this blessing. And her words capture this. The Lord has done for me when he looked upon me and, and, and took away my reproach. There's that, that cultural just pressing in. Oh, they must be in sin. They must have done something horrible, right? No. All this time, this was God's plan. This is, this is plan A. All those prayers that they prayed were answered. Answered prayers. The Lord has heard your prayer. Don't miss this. God can answer prayers prayed dozens of years ago. Right here today. He is not limited to the moment as we are. He is the God who created time. He stores our prayers in a golden bowl before his throne. It is the prayers of the saints that are kept. It's as if they ring out in his ears eternally. There is no prayer that fades by time. The prayers you pray today can be answered 30 years from now, just as they can be answered 30 seconds from now. That should encourage us to be a people of prayer. God treasures these prayers, this dependence. Her reproach was removed. They were seen to be, in fact, who they always were, faithful, obedient, ordinary people. That God had a very specific and peculiar plan as they aged 
our response this morning, there's four things I'd like to point out, uh, just observations from this text. Number one, God moves in different ways at different times. I think sometimes we just have to remind ourselves of this. It's easy for us to say, Lord, uh, this isn't the way we always do it, right? Have you ever been there? Uh, this isn't the way we always do it. This is, we, like it, we like it when it happens like this. We pray, and then you answer. Exactly like we were hoping you would. But, but you're free, God, to do as you please. He is the God who can go for 400 years in silence. And he is the God who can answer immediately, even before we pray it, or dozens of years after. We've even stopped praying because we've assumed the answer is no. He is free. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He moves different ways at different times. This is it's so important to remember. Just because you read this is the way he did it in this scenario doesn't mean he is required to do that. You cannot box God in. He is faithful, but he is not predictable. Okay? If you learn nothing else from reading your Bible, you have to conclude that. He is faithful, but he is not predictable. If anything, he proves unpredictable in his faithfulness. He delights to show his strength in weakness. He delights to show his wisdom in foolishness. He takes the persecutor of the church and builds the church with him. He takes the guy named Moses who literally can't speak and he makes him the mouthpiece of God to Pharaoh. This is the kind of way that God works. He's good and he's faithful. Remember this. But he, he won't be boxed in. There's no formula to predict the hand of God. He can stir a revival in this place, in this church, at this time, and exact same circumstances can happen five years later, and silence. You can't program God. He's not a thermostat. He's all sovereign and he's free. And praise God for the breaking of the silence after 400 years. It's all grace. It's all grace. Second, God uses regular people and rocky circumstances to reveal his glory. God is not limited to sunny days. In fact, in many times, he brings the storm. He brings the challenges to our lives. And, and just regular people, ordinary people. And that's the moment where he says, Watch how great I am. I'll reveal more of who I am to you. In fact, I imagine that one of the reasons that Zechariah and Elizabeth were so rooted and grounded and obedient and faithful is because the furnace of the fire of prayers left unanswered, it seemed, for all of those years. The angry looks, the accusatory comments that Elizabeth assumed of all of these people oh she must be sinful what did they do they don't have no god used that furnace to establish them in righteousness to trust him to persevere in their faith to walk with him hmm. 
God doesn't always answer according to our will. He always answers according to His will. His will be done in our lives. Come what may. Number three, God delights in our dependence and answers according to His all-wise design. Why is that? Why does God delight in our dependence? Why does He say, pray to me? Lift up your prayers such that it's like incense that rises before my nostrils. Why does He treasure our longing for Him, our needing of Him, our trusting and desiring Him with all our hearts? Why is that so important to God? I believe this is, this is why. It shows who He is in all that we need. It reminds us of our desperate need, our lack, and His abundance and glory. And the greatest thing that God can give us is not always the answer to our prayers. It's God. Sometimes, the way He chooses to give us Himself is by saying, keep praying, keep trusting me, keep waiting for me, I'm working. We just can't wait until you see how this walks out. Hmm. God delights in being depended upon by his children. He's a father who loves to give good gifts to those who ask. Number four, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing. We can be reminded of this, can't we? Zechariah struggled to believe this. And I think this story meets us in that place where we say, okay, now here's another reason for us to trust. Another example of what he can do. If we don't have enough in every patriarch's wife and also in Samson's mom's prayer and Hannah's prayer, and now Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer being answered, then in all of these things over which we have no control, we can say, you indeed have control. You have control. You can when we can. And so we look to you. We trust you. All of these events happened as the precursor to the arrival of Jesus Christ. This all is about Jesus. Everything here. John the Baptist, his uh, ordained existence is to point to Jesus. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see his arrival and delight together in it. We know where the story goes, and we're going to journey there as we move through the Gospel of Luke. Praise God that nothing is too hard for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We know that these people are real. This is not just a fabricated, inspirational story to just say, wow, that's great, and walk away from. This, this is a story to say, look at who you are. You are such a good God. You are such a strong and powerful, sovereign God. What purpose of yours could ever be thwarted you are a God who has a plan to redeem your people. And every single detail along the way is plotted and planned. 
including every single person sitting here this morning, hearing these words. Ordained for these people in this place on this day, these verses. Lord, land them, I pray. Encourage your people with these verses. Make us a people dependent upon you, a, a people of prayer who look to you, knowing that nothing is too difficult for you. Help us to be a people of faith, a, a people who, whose response would be more like Mary than Zechariah. And Lord, we're grateful that we can speak. We're, we're given the message of life and joy and, and called to be those who testify to the ends of the earth. Use us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.